The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello again, everybody. This is Rich Eisen, editor of Capital Weekly, and you have tuned into the Capital Weekly Podcast. And uh, I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime here, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well. How are you, Rich? I'm doing fabulous. And uh, we have a we have a cool guest today because if there's one thing that we like more than talking about politics, it's talking about food. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about good eats around the capital community today uh, with our friend Carney King, uh, who by day works for uh, Senator Roth over in the building, but uh, spends his lunch hours uh, running an account on Twitter that we call the Culinary Caucus. Correct. Correct. Culinary All right. Caucus. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. If there's one thing we all like, it's food. And it's, uh, seeing the reaction I got when I started the Culinary Caucus uh, makes me think that there's plenty of other people that are interested in the best lunch spots around town. Well, and you only started this about a month, a little over a month ago, right? Yeah, just uh, right when the uh, new 34 Cantina opened in place of Vallejo's. That's right. And that's now that's the because there were three Vallejos. There was the one on N Street, there was the one in Posies, and there was one down on S Street. Yeah. So which which one was this? The Posies. The Posies one, yeah. Well, give us the backstory again on on how you came to start the, the Culinary Caucus. Because I think it's kind of interesting to hear how it because it was pretty organic from from everything that we know about it. Yeah, definitely. My boss and I saw that the 34 Cantina had opened, so I tweeted out, you know, new business in town, make sure we check them out, support a local business, and you know, hopefully we'll have a good replacement for Vallejo's because I know people will miss it. And several people, I think two or three people reached out to me saying, you know, give us a review. What do you think about it? And I remember a friend told me, if you can't find something on the internet, it's your job to put it there. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, we're going to start documenting all the lunch spots around town and give them some reviews and tips to any new staffers that are looking for a cheap meal around town. Well, and it's good timing because we have lost so many of the regular lunch spots. Uh, you know, and for me, the the one that I, I mean, I lament a lot of them, but the one that killed me was Bud's Buffet, which, you know, I can't go to every day, but boy, did I count down the days till I could go there. And then they closed during the pandemic and have not reopened. And I'm assuming probably never will, but we lost a lot of other spots. Yeah, quite a few. Bud's Buffet was a big one, but at least you now have the Curry Club still with the $12 lunch buffet. So. Now, where is that? It is close. I think it's 12th and oh, somewhere around there. Oh, okay. I can't remember. I feel like I've been there once, but it's been, obviously, it's been years since. It, you know, speaking of Bud's, I, I also lament Bud's. Bud's was one of, one of the iconic places and that's a word that gets overused a lot but i think with buds it's really true because that was just you said buds and everybody knew what you you know knew about buds but i almost started a riot there once by accident our one of our reporters here brian joseph was meeting me there for lunch i got in line i saw him come in i was waving at him and all i wanted him to do was to tell me what he wanted so i could order it for him he thought i was waving him up to come join me in line. Well, of course, there's, you know, all these people in line. And, man, people about lost their minds, right? And I, I was like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. But we got it all worked out without any blood being spilled. But I learned at that point, boy, 
you're not going to get, don't even try getting in front, in front of somebody in line at Bud's Buffet. That's it's true. That is going to be a problem, man. So other places, just thinking about other places we lost, we were talking about this before the podcast started. The other one is Ambrosia. I mean, Ambrosia was the go-to spot for lobbyists, for lawmakers, for when every time I ever walked in there, there was uh, a small a small meeting going on between uh, you know a lawmaker and a couple lobbyists. I always said that if you wanted to know what was going on in Sacramento, you could just bug Ambrosia and you would be privy to every secret there ever was. But they closed pretty early on. Also, Alejandro's, a little Mexican place on K Street that had a line to the door every single day of the week to see employees, you know, during lunchtime. And I couldn't believe that was gone. It was like that salsa bar. I'm never going never gonna to get it back. Well, it is true, too. I mean, you know, everybody has to eat lunch for the most part. And the capital community has always been a place where, uh, you know, we, we joke about the power of lunch, but it's really true, right? And the higher up you are the food chain, the more you're likely to be at the Frank Fats's or the, those places, right? But for the rank and file and folks who actually get things done, you know, Ambrosia was absolutely one. Buzz was absolutely one. Alejandro's, Vallejo's, those are all places where, you know, you could let your hair down a little bit and go have a good conversation with somebody. Uh, as a reporter, I know I've had a lot of conversations there with you know, off the record stuff where you, you could build relationships, right? This is one of the hardest things about the pandemic was you, there was no way to build new relationships the way that we all need them so that, you know, because we rely on them so much around the capital community, no matter what our job is. So it's great just to have these places back open again, be able to go there again. So what are some of your, uh, some of the places you found that you like that you've been writing about or do you have, have yet to write about? Yeah, so uh, one of my favorite ones is, uh, it's called Kindred Soul, and it's inside the new state building on 11th and O. I want to say it's the new transportation building or something, but it's like uh, in the lobby, and it's just rice bowls, kind of Korean-flavored rice bowls and burritos and stuff. So it's a quick little walk from the swing space and, you know, $10 for a pretty good-sized portion to eat. So Interesting. And so and you mentioned a Korean place that opened... Uh, in place of Devere's, which yeah. is another victim of the of the pandemic. Yeah, I was see, sad to see Devere's go. Uh, and the replacement is called Soul Street. It's not the same kind of bar atmosphere that you got from Devere's, but it's really good Korean food. I get the short rib, and it's well, fantastic. And you know, right, because you spent some time in Korea, correct? Yeah, I lived in Korea for two years, and it's probably been my favorite cuisine ever since then. So Really? So do you eat a lot of kimchi? Oh, yeah. I buy it uh, by the time. You know, in tubs at Costco, it's one of my favorites. Are they the best Korean place in Sacramento, or do you have a, uh, some suggestions for us? They're up there. They're right now. They're my favorite. But like the Whitey Tofu House and on uh, Freeport Boulevard oh, yeah. and uh, Oz Korean Barbecue. If you want to cook it yourself, that's what always was a fun it, experience. Is it Pine Tree out on uh, Folsom Boulevard? I don't know if they're still there, but they used to be really good. Yeah, I can't remember where it was, but that was a good one, too. Yeah, I think it's out on Folsom Boulevard, kind of Branch Cordova area. Well, we had talked about the uh, lunch counter at, was it the Secretary of State building? Yes, the Gold Rush Grill. Yeah. That's a good, definitely cheap, quick lunches uh, right in the Secretary of State's office on the second floor. They send out a daily email with their special of the day, which is usually tacos, burritos. Every Tuesday is a salad bar. Every Friday they do salmon, which I'm not sure I trust, but uh, <laughs> the option is there. Um, so I have good specials, but then you, yesterday I got a sandwich with French fries for seven bucks. 
So that's about as quick and fast as you can get anything around the swing space. Yeah, you know, and I wish, you know, this is not a, a video podcast, but I wish we could show you. You're actually wearing a hot dog, a shirt covered with hot dogs right now. <laughs> Got my wiener dog on and it, pickles. too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pickles. pickles. Yeah, Chicago yeah. dog, everything you need. There you go. Well, I'm curious, you know, like with food reviewers, they have to keep their identity, uh, you know, under wraps so that, you know, it doesn't impact how they're treated when they go to a restaurant. Have you run into that yet where people don't know it's you and they're like, hey, hey, you know, let's make sure give him more. Or, you know, we got we got to get a good review on Twitter over this. One of these days, I'm hoping we'll get there. You know, uh, I've been at when I was at 34 Cantina, two different people that were eating there were like, I saw your tweet yesterday. That's why I'm here today. We're kind of making a difference. But, you know, I'm, I'm definitely careful. I don't want to, like, take anything. I don't want to have to report on my uh, Form 700 or something from restaurants. But, <laughs> you know. The goal is that Localis is going to say, come review us and put me up in their dinner, but I don't think that's going to happen. It's interesting. You know, I, I wonder how much that's still the same in the age of social media, because I remember I used to publish a magazine called Midtown Monthly about 10 years ago, and we did an interview with the Bees reviewer, Blair Anthony Robertson at the time. So we wanted to have a photo to run with the article. Well, we couldn't show a photo, so we had to very carefully do a, a silhouette where you really couldn't tell what his hair was like and all that. And what's funny is then a few years later, I was became aware of the fact that many restaurants actually had a photo of Blair Anthony Robertson that they had got somewhere pinned up in their kitchen. So they knew, you know, and, and also I got to say a lot of the, you know, he was a pretty tough critic, you know, Sacramento before that had had some pretty softball food reviewers and he didn't, you know, he came in and I remember he ripped a little steakhouse, a new one, and they were not happy and they actually called his boss trying to get him fired but anyway so they had this uh you know a lot of the restaurants had his photo up in there and i'm you know probably using it as a dartboard too because he was he was not friendly to some of the some of the standards well they were used to alan Perleone for years and that's true i mean pretty much every restaurant was so good and and so worth your time and money etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah blair was a big difference yeah he actually gave a pretty straight legit review i mean i think he's it was complimentary where it deserved it. Yeah. But, I mean, I think you're right. For years, they, they, I'm not going to cast aspersions on why anyone would always be given good reviews. I'm just saying that that was a pretty common thing for a long time. Because I've been around this town a long time. I, that I knew who was the food reviewer before Blair Anthony Robinson. Well, there. and what's funny is I do remember there was a scandal when Blair listed his two favorite restaurants in town. And it was the kitchen and it was Lalo's. Out on uh, like 24th Street, and Lalo's. I think I think a taco may still be like a dollar seventy-five in the kitchen. Uh, a bill would be more likely to come up to like one hundred and seventy-five for a couple okay. people. And there was just outrage, you know, that he would he would put Lalo's in the same company. But I gotta say, Lalo's is pretty damn good. If you haven't been, uh, so where are some of your other favorite places? Um, I like a lot of places around town. I think. If I'm really going to break out my wallet and have a big fancy meal, I'm usually going to go to Crew. I think their sushi is the best. I mean, I love Makuni's. It's great, but it's not Crew. You know, that's uh, where it's at. And then the restaurant that my family has used for our celebration, you know, default, uh, you know, going out to eat to celebrate something has been El Noviero. Oh, yeah. uh, That's the best Mexican restaurant. I think it's on Franklin, right? Yeah, Franklin. Yeah, a classic. Yeah, like Franklin and 47th, I think. They have the big fenced-off cactus garden. Yeah, they expanded their parking lot, which is nice. Cause yeah. It used to be impossible to find anything in there. Uh, that's a great place. That's a really great place. And, you know, 
I think sometimes um, location scares people off. They think, oh, Franklin Boulevard, you know, they have these preconceived ideas of what places are like or whatever. But that that's a place that's really worth going to. They had the best butcher shop down there, or deli, I guess, uh, Morant's was that on Franklin, right down the street for the longest time. And it was the only place anywhere I could find authentic andouille sausage, other, you know, uh, great German sausages. I mean, they were fabulous, but they had a fire a few years ago yeah. and they closed down and, and that was it. That was the end of them. And it was just a, a real shame. I could get really authentic tasso sausage there. I mean, I've spent time in Louisiana, and that that was the only other place I could find Tasso and Andouille as authentic as as what they had at Morant's. And the thing, you know, this this was a German family, but they made this really great Cajun sausage that was just the best. Just hurt my heart when they went out of business. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, my greatest relief uh, during COVID, uh, watching all the restaurants go down, was that Zelda's survived, Zelda's Pizza, which John and I used to battle it out. John Howard, the old the former co-host of the Capital Inca podcast, John didn't like Zelda's Pizza. He thought it was wildly overrated. I think it's wildly underrated. I could eat there basically every day if I wouldn't have a heart attack like in a week. Yeah. But uh, but I love that place. And I know they struggled at one point and they put out the call and said, hey, we could use more business. And I know that I tried to order a pizza the next week, you know, anytime the next week and you couldn't even get through on the phone because I got so much business. So they're doing a little bit better and now it's down to a dull roar. But same old pizza, the Spinocli is still as good as ever. So I have to ask you, since you're wearing a shirt with hot dogs on it, where's the best hot dog that you've had here in Sacramento? Oh, in Sacramento? I'll be honest, I ate a Posey's pre-made hot dog right before I came over here. <laughs> no complaints about it. Ironically enough, I made my own hot dog at home right before I came over here. It's weird. <laughs> I do love a good hot dog, but I can't say that I've found one in Sacramento that was... Well, sadly, there was a place that was great right off of Elvis Boulevard that had been there for like got 50 years and they closed pre-pandemic, I think. There is the Hot Dogger in Davis, mm -hmm. a legendary hot dog spot. There's a food truck too, a Heavenly Dog, now that oh. I think about it. And Heavenly Dog was good because they had like a Western bacon dog, so it was wrapped in bacon with onion rings on it. The best place to get a hot dog in Sacramento. Go to the church across the street from Southside Park on Sunday, and there are people out there with the little carts, oh, yeah. and they make... They sell tamales stuff, but they also sell hot dogs, and it is amazing. Yeah, I think they set up outside of uh, Golden One Center, too, after King's Games. Oh, I can believe it, yeah. Them around. This is worth asking about, because so years ago when I was working in D.C., it was every workday on both sides of the Capitol, not around the Capitol, but in the neighborhoods around the Capitol, there would be armies of food trucks. Right. Like, on, and I lived in Northwest so that, you know, you would go over, uh, like right by the National Portrait Gallery, like around, uh, ninth and, uh, D, somewhere around ninth and, ninth and E in those areas. And it was perfectly kosher for them to take up one whole block. Right. But you could get such this huge variety of food. Almost anything you would imagine, there was a truck there. And if, and, you know, if you went over on into Anacosta and over in that part of town, same thing. Right. We don't have that here. And it just amazes me. You know, you would think, and I know there's, there's city regs and all that stuff that's the problem, but I would think, man, what, a, how we are missing the boat on having a great food truck culture here with, especially with people back at the Capitol. Oh, well, I got to say, there was, uh, there was a whole food truck 
scene, I guess it was maybe about 10, 15 years ago, and bring it all back to the Capitol. It was a guy who was a Senate consultant. Gosh, I'm dry, I hate to say I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he spoke, uh, he was, I think he was born in Austria, but he spoke fluent uh, Spanish and like four other languages. And he was obsessed with food trucks and he organized the food trucks and got them doing food truck pop-ups and like festivals. And eventually he left his capital job and now that's what he does. Yeah, there's like a whole weekly Sacto Mofo. That's it. Thing. So that's it, yeah. Right. Foods. And then even pre-pandemic at Cesar Chavez Park, they would do like every Wednesday they had right. like the uh, kind of a food truck roundup. And I remember a few events where they closed down the mall. And did right on Capitol Street. They had a bunch of food trucks, but it's been a while. Yeah, and you know, and bringing it all back to politics, I do remember when there was when the food trucks were first starting to kind of make their way into Sacramento and be a thing. A local restaurateur who is now no longer with us, but was a well-known restaurateur, Randy Perigary, uh, basically fought tooth and nail against them. He's like, "Hey, I'm opening these. You know, I'm giving people jobs, etc." And he fought everything they got and i think he ultimately lost but he i think he slowed down the process a lot because he just did not want people going out and spending you know 10 bucks in a food truck versus spending you know 20 bucks in his business and uh you know that was that was a fight at the time that's always the thing though right except people looking out for their their personal interests but i mean can you imagine if during the day they closed down 10th street between n and l and just allowed a dozen food trucks to be there from 12 to 1 with all of the built-in business from the capital community. I mean, that would be such a fabulous thing. Although here's a question. Would that work now? I mean, right now people are still not, I don't know about you and your office. Uh, are, are people back in the office regularly or do you, are you full staffing? Yeah, the Senate's full, uh, back in office. Okay. But I think a lot of the state employees, I mean, I know we're, we're recording this at the corner of 11th and H and the coffee shop downstairs from us went out of business during the pandemic has not come back. And I know a lot of the restaurants are really struggling because there's just not the state employee base. I know Tony's Delicatessen, which had the double whammy of, of dealing with COVID, but also then got really just torn apart during one of the protests, you know, civil rights protests about two years ago. And they were closed, I think, for the better part of the year while they basically had to rebuild the whole business. Thankfully, they've reopened, but I know that they said it's still not the same as it was. I really wonder, even if you had, you know, if you built it, would they come? Well, I'm, I'm going to advocate that the answer would be yes, but then that's me. You know, I because I would be out at the food truck every day if, if there was one there. So maybe probably, uh, you know, my wife and my doctor would probably be in opposition to my stance on this. Yeah, I try and uh, pack a lunch every day and not spend all my money on lunches, but <laughs> it's tough. And the food truck uh, scene would definitely hurt the wallet. But I think it would get some good work because I know everyone in the swing space is pretty much back in um, all the legislative branches. It's just the executive that's working from home, I believe. Okay. Well, Cardi King, thanks. So if people are looking for the Culinary Caucus, where do they find it on Twitter? Uh, at Caucus Culinary. Culinary Caucus was taken for the handle, so <laughs> switch them around. Um, so for right now, I'm, I'm hoping to start tracking um, the best lunch deals that you can find in town. So far, we've got the Curry Club with their $12 buffet and the Secretary of State's office, but hopefully we'll find some more gems and I'll get some tips from people that can point us in the right direction. So send your cards and letters to, uh, to Carney King in the Culinary Caucus That's right. if you find a good spot. Well, look, I'm really thrilled that we've actually found some really good, valuable information on Twitter for 
for a change, right? There's got to be some use to it other than people who don't even know each other screaming obscenities at well, each wait, other. Have you, have you paid for your blue check mark? That's no, right. <laughs> we'll, pay, we'll pay for the blue check, but see. <laughs> no, God, don't do that. That 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 would that would be uh, the antithesis of a good deal, right? That's right. All right, well, Carney King, thank you so much for telling us about this, and we'll uh, we'll follow you on Twitter, and we'll let you know if we find any good deals. Awesome, thanks. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll share our good deal information with you. Perfect. I will put it out there. <laughs> All right. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Okay. Well, now it is time for our one of our favorite segments at any time here on the Cap Weekly Podcast. Who had the worst week in California politics? Well, Tim has gone off to other duties, and so I'm, uh, I've am i called in the cavalry here to help me out so you all don't have to just listen to me solo this week as we talk about who had the worst week in politics. And I'm really thrilled to have my old buddy, former Cap Weekly editor John Howard, who's agreed to come back and talk about uh, a little bit of California political stuff this week. John, how are you doing? I'm fine, Rich. Thank you very much for asking me. I want you to know I woke up about 15 minutes ago because I'm a retiree now, you know, but now I'm alert. <laughs> second cup of coffee. So <laughs> thank you. Well, so much. Politics waits for nobody. But apparently, John, now you can wait for anybody. You're just living the casual freewheeling life, right? That's right. You got it. I, I, I am fully clothed and bathed, I think. But other than that, <laughs> retirement is, you know, it's pretty interesting, although I'm pretty busy doing a lot of other stuff. As you know, I'm doing some other stuff, too. So you are doing. Uh, but thanks for asking that. me. This is uh, this is really good. And somebody always had the worst week. That's what I like about California politics. Somebody definitely always had the worst week. And we we I think we both agree this week who's going to be the the top. But let's lead into that because I you know you brought up a really really good candidate for for who maybe had the second worst week in <laughs> uh, California politics. And so we're talking about Julie Sue, who's you know, trying to get confirmed as a U.S. Secretary of Labor in uh, in D.C. And, John, it's not going well, is it? It is not going at all well. When last I checked, well, a while back when I checked, the, the EDD scandal, the fraudulent claims it had paid out, was somewhere north of $20 billion, $25 billion. This morning, I saw a story in the B by David Lightman that said that, the number now is about $30 billion in fraudulent claims related to the pandemic that were filed by people wanting claim, I mean, wanting funds, but actually didn't deserve them. Julie Sue was the employment department director at that point. Now she wants to be the, labor, the new Labor Department secretary permanently. She's acting secretary now. She wants to be permanently in that job, and Biden wants to put her there. And that's where it stands out. She's getting worked over pretty badly by people who relate who refer to her California record. Yeah. And, you know, I think we all agree that, you know, she doesn't necessarily deserve all of the blame for that. But that is a huge number. And when you were in charge, there's just no way, whether you were there five minutes or five years, to not have the oil yeah. from that one get all up in you. And that's just how it is, right? She's just getting yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And and honestly, as polarized as the Senate is, uh, and with Dianne Feinstein still AWOL, maybe that's not the right term. She's not absent without leave, but she's not there. I apologize for all Feinstein supporters. Please don't send me cards and letters. It was just a phrase. <laughs> uh, her absence due to dealing with illness 
is really creating a problem. They can't, these, this is one of the problems we've been talking about judges, but it's also things like this, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, I don't often quote Mitt Romney, but he said the person at the top, the buck stops there. So, oh. and, and Julie's been around politics enough to know that as well. A few years ago, there was Ruth Coleman, fine parks and recreation director, but there was some money found in a slush fund is too strong a word, but there was some unused money in her fund in the budget of parks and rec that caused her a lot of problems. She immediately stepped down. Yeah. It's just, it wasn't that her, it was her fault, but she's the person at the top of the tree. So I think Julie may be in that situation as well. And as you mentioned, Feinstein being gone, the 5149 on the floor, everybody voting according to party goes to 5049. And I know there would be Democrats who would not vote for Sue's confirmation. And that throws the whole thing into a just one. All it would take would be one, you know. So yeah. very talented, but she's had a tough week. And when you got Mitch McConnell out there railing to, to his base uh, in the Senate, then chances don't look good for her. So. Yeah, I, I think right now it's really, really tenuous. Yeah. Something else that's very tenuous right now is the ability of the Oakland A's to stay in Oakland. I think everybody uh, was blindsided this week by the announcement that they had purchased some land in a, in a non-binding deal in the city of Las Vegas, and we're going to be yeah. focusing all their efforts on moving the team to Las Vegas for the start of the 2027 Major League Baseball season. This is a California political issue, of course, because the, uh, you know, the struggle, the ongoing struggle for years uh, to find the A's a home in Oakland has been focused for a long time on a massive, massive restoration project or at the Howard Terminal site down in Jack London Square area. And so I would say nobody was caught more off guard and more blindsided than Oakland's mayor, Sheng Tao, who, you know, herself is new to the job. She's only been in the position four months. Um, yeah. So I'm going to include probably uh, former Mayor Libby Schaff and everyone else who's been involved with, with this. As we know, there's been state legislation to speed up the EIR uh, requirements around this. There's been lots of negotiating with big unions. There's on and on and on. This has definitely been a big uh, state-level issue beyond just, of course, the city of Oakland. And now it looks possibly like, as far as it relates to the A's anyway, that it might all be for naught. And again... Even though she's been in office for four months, if that happens, this will be the third major professional sports franchise in five years to abandon Oakland. And so there's no way that is not going to reflect on the current mayor, whether she had, you know, whether this is her fault or not, which it almost certainly is not uh, any one person's fault regardless. But that's a pretty but, bad week. You know, one nice thing, one thing going in the mayor's behalf, I mean, I agree 100%. Uh, she was blindsided, as just about everybody was, by the idea of another Oakland team going to Las Vegas. And by the way, no no offense to Las Vegas, but I think Las Vegas sucks. Have you ever been to Las Vegas in the summertime? Oh, my goodness, yes. Can you imagine cool. sitting in a baseball, outside the shade maybe, in the stadium, and it's 115 degrees out? I just don't know. You know, I mean, I don't like the Oakland traffic, but we're going to the Coliseum, but... I don't know. It seems a little improbable. But anyway, well, standpoint of viewership and all the other things. I mean, Oakland is a top 10 market. Las yeah. Vegas is a number 40, I think, right around there. 
Um, I know that, uh, you know, it's been included in an expansion talk. I mean, I don't want to necessarily just, you know, drag on Las Vegas all the time, but the reality is here, it seems like an odd move for Uh them. Yeah. I mean, apparently it's paying off for the Raiders. I mean, clearly they're, you know, but see, here's the other thing I wonder, the mayor and the, and the governor have both emphatically said there's going to be no new taxes, right? Well, the A's are coming in expecting about $500 million from somebody. Now, is it going to be the state? Is it going to be the city? Who knows? But if there's no new taxes, well, that means there's going to be some real creativity coming out of probably the legislature, because clearly the city doesn't have that much money, on how they're going to come up with that. The legislative session's almost over in Nevada right now. So uh, reading some of the independent Uh, reports coming out of Vegas. The A's this year hired 18 lobbyists to work the state legislature. Oh my gosh, really? So they have clearly been working this side of the, of the angle for quite a while. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's something in the works here that we don't know about yet. Maybe there's, there's legislation to come up with this money. My understanding is they would have to be essentially be robbing Peter to pay Paul take a bunch of money from other that was tagged for other things, move it over to where they could give it to the A's, I should say. You know, I have no idea, no true insight into uh, Las Vegas politics or Nevada politics, though a good friend of ours who is based in Las Vegas these days, our good buddy Brian Joseph, who does a lot of work for us at the weekly he lives there now, and of course, his opinion is generally what the casinos want, the uh, casinos get, and it appears they want this. So, you know, I will just say it does not look good for the city of Oakland, but I will also say sports fans will remember the Giants were out the door. They were ready to leave. They were Their bags were packed. They were going to Tampa, and this was in the 80s. Clearly, they're not in Tampa. The A's were out the door all the way back in the late 70s. People old like me will remember that they were Finley was Charlie Finley was going to sell them to Marvin Davis and who was going to move them to Denver. It was all but a done deal when the Haas family of the Levi's uh, jeans fortune, they swooped in and bought the team, kept it in Oakland and gave it one of its great eras in Oakland baseball. It you know, seems as if the um, the incentives that the local governments offer these teams is really, at the end of the day, sort of is a major deciding factor. And oh, how absolutely. much public funding, you know, how much support for stadium, how much, how many rule restrictions, covenants, how many, how land zoning and land use. Las Vegas, I think, is offered 49. I think the idea there is a 49 acre plot. Mm-hmm. I think in Oakland, they were talking about ancillary businesses surrounding the stadium and then affordable housing a lot of things on top of it you know like but the last thing you want to know you, know, you can't make a decision now i mean i can't just say hey they're going to make the move but it seems to me everything's in line right now if i understand this discussion well, like, you know. i think you and i both we've both been around politics long enough to know is if you add enough money you can solve anything so yeah. all, all of the stuff that's going on that makes it a real challenge in vegas can be solved by money it's just who's going to come up with the money 500 million dollars is a lot of money for a state that doesn't have a huge tax base and has no state income tax so yeah. we'll see 
is it going to be some other money, some private money? Is it is are they seriously going to rob a, a whole bunch of other state funds and just shove it over across the aisle, across yeah. the table into into John Fisher's coffers? It's possible. I mean, I think at this point anything is possible. I will tell you though, you know, Sheng Tao has said in the, over the last few days very emphatically that they're going to continue forward with what with something at Howard Terminal, regardless. Though I would say the ballpark was going to be the anchor of that. Uh-huh. So everything was centered around building this big ballpark project. Without the ballpark, I mean, I know they got about $375 million from the feds that they do not have to give back, by the way, but it does have to be spent on that project. Whether they will get the rest of the money they need for that, if the ballpark's not going to happen, now that's a very open question. So yeah, I think everybody on it, dealing with that from the Oakland City perspective, this was a bad, bad last few days for sure. So yeah. it's a dubious hat, to, crown to wear, but I think they get the crown this week for having the worst week in California politics. Yeah. Right, you are. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, John. And hey, come on and uh, guest with me again sometime. I, you know, it's always great to hear you. Nobody knows more about what's going on in California politics than you, even when you're retired. So yeah. I have to do it pretty quickly. Otherwise, I'll forget it all. You know, that's what I keep hearing is in, in store for me. So <laughs> thank well, you so much. I'll be happy to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, all right. We'll see you next time on the Cap Weekly Podcast. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.